morning, good afternoon, good evening to the world of IT. I'm Jack Sargent here with Coltec Global. Thank you for joining us on our series podcast, the FinTech and InsureTech series. Today, I'm very happy and pleasured to say that we're here with Rick Bunker. He is currently working as a CTO with Invenium. He's an expert in management and software development with roles in venture and PE-backed companies. Richard has a progressive experience within executive level technology positions as CIO and CTO. Right now, Richard is leading an engineering team of over 60 employees for a disruptive technology financial services company, as mentioned, called Invenium. Rick, you probably know a bit better about your career, so I'll let you uh, take the lead on that one and uh, give us the whole spiel. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. I started my career, well, after playing around in the army and being a Russian literature major in college as a programmer, then went up programming primarily in financial services and primarily doing the back end as opposed to the UI development stuff until I got into management. It's been a good 20 years since anybody paid me to actually write code. I I no longer do anything anymore. I just talk about other people working. I've been the CTO or CIO of three public companies all the way down to starting a company, you know, one of two people sitting in a kitchen saying, let's start a business and a number of things in between. The aspect of business that I get most enthusiastic about is uh, building software. So working for companies where either the software is the product or the, the service is very significantly enabled by the software. And Massive puzzle in some, in some words. Yeah. Yeah. So that it, it, it's so it's important, right? And the reason I like lead, leading decent-sized teams, and and I believe my team will be closer to a hundred by the end of the year, is because you can't build a bridge with three people. You know, if you want yeah. to do a big ambitious thing, then the trick is to find a lot of smart, talented, qualified people and figure out how to structure their work and make it all work together so that you can do stuff that's that's really impressive that's too big for just a small team to do yeah and that's when it gets exciting that's to me yeah no definitely and it's exciting to hear i mean it's, it's always good to get that insight typically in my job especially you mostly speak to the engineers the developers and understand from their perspective but there's a vision throughout the whole if you say in some sort of the hierarchy in terms of as you mm-hmm. go to the bottom to the top people have their visions and different sort of explanations on that and a reason for that I think it's really interesting to understand and you mentioned that so obviously you had your coding days and a big thing sure. that I've realized within software development engineering just coding in general it's more than just a job it's a hobby as well with yourself and as you mentioned not doing it for 20 years almost or someone I'm getting paid to do, to do it you're getting paid to do it so do you miss the coding do you miss that sort of aspect of the job do you do it in sort of your own time I, I do some you know you know, I decided I needed to learn a functional language. And so I found some online courses about Erlang and played around with that. The last time I got paid to write code, it was C, just to give you a sense, right? right? Wow. Not C++, I'm talking yeah. C, right? So <laughs> it's a while ago. There was a course called Learn Python the Hard Way, I think it was. And so I went through that and, and got a great deal of pleasure with it. And I'm working towards becoming a node operator on a blockchain just to keep my hands in that stuff. Mostly just informs my job. The job that I have has really three primary components. And one is the HR component, right? How do I get a bunch of well-qualified, smart people to want to work 
for us? How do I find them? How do I get them to join us? Then how do I retain them? How do I keep the job interesting and fulfilling for them? I'm very happy to say our biggest center for software development is in Ukraine, and our team is less than half, closer to a third of the turnover rate, which is average for IT in Ukraine. So we're having some success there, right? Yeah. But it's paying attention to keeping the job interesting for people, knowing how to create a career path for people, promoting them, taking you know advantage of their growth and success, and sometimes dealing with underperformers or you know, descenders. So that's part of it is the HR part, right? Yeah. And then a big part of it is being the senior most architect. And that's where, again, I couldn't do it if I didn't have my, that my background as a very technical programmer. Definitely. And, and it keeps me current and fresh because, you know, in the year 2000, people weren't building things with a microservices architecture, you know, based on SNS and SQS running on Amazon cloud web services, but that's what we're doing now. And so yes. I get to learn all this new stuff and dig in and understand how to apply it. And I can work with analogies from the stuff 20 years ago sometimes, but a lot of times it's a chance to learn something new and stay fresh and, and be deeply involved in the architecture of how we're going to build a system that will scale appropriately, that will be secure, that will be available that will have the flexibility to do the things we need to do. Maybe that's the part that's the most fun for me because of who I am, right? Definitely. Although I really like the people stuff too. I, I have to say, I really do like it. You know, when you find someone who's maybe not perfectly succeeding, but you can see they're very talented and you spend the time and figure out that there's this other job that's just a little bit different than what they were doing, but you put them there and you watch them flourish, to the benefit of the organization and to their success, that's a big thrill. But disappearing into the details of the technology with my architecture team for a few hours is almost like a Zen experience. You know, I think my blood pressure goes down from yeah. doing it. <laughs> and then the third part is the part that I like the least, but it's very important. And that is establishing a software development life cycle, establishing the policies and procedures, making sure it's documented and then policing that it's really followed. And that's a proxy for quality for me, right? With 65 people or 100 people, or, you know, I've had teams up to 250 people reporting to me in my career. I can't do a review of all that code myself. Yeah. I can't even really know what they're working on, right? But if I want quality to happen, what I can do is establish an SDLC, which has appropriate nimbleness, and you have to know what appropriate is depending on the industry you're in and the stage of the company in its life cycle, but appropriate rigor because that's a proxy for quality. And it's not a guarantee of quality, but it gives you a, a fighting chance. You know, yeah. if the design went through a grooming process and you followed the steps and had a review with architecture and had a review with security before you said that the Epic and the stories were ready for development, right? And if the development proceeded apace with the QA de developing the test plans and the AQA people building the regression tests and the code reviews were signed off on and the scans, you could scan for security issues within source code now. You could scan for the improper inclusion of open source stuff in your source. You know, if, if those things happen, and the QA signed off and 
you can trust the stuff, you know, and if you really do separate the developers from production and so your DevOps team can take the stuff and release it into a production environment in an orderly fashion with tests. All that stuff leads to having some confidence in the quality of what you've built. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I have to say, I'm just delighted with my team who don't take too much babysitting to get them to do that. Right. It's, it's sort of drilled into the DNA of how we work. And so I'll just have confidence that, you know, when I'm on a call and they say, well, let's go look in the confluence and see what's there, that I won't find something that's stale. It'll be there. Yeah. It'll have been kept up to date. When I click through the link to the ticket in JIRA, it'll be there. It'll show what was done. You know, when they want to capitalize something and I go in and produce the report of work by Epic by quarter, you know, that it'll be there. It'll, and that's very satisfying yeah. that I and don't I think, have to whip them. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that all just comes from the, the whole management as a whole, because people want to work for people that they want you to work for them sort of thing. But in a way that is sort of collaborative, there is that sort of side of, OK, look, we need to get head down. We need to do what we need to do. But on the other side that, you know, that when you come to the end, that it's going to be celebrations. There's going to be those pats on the back. It's going to be sure. what you need. It all comes from, like I said, from the top all the way down to the bottom. And as you mentioned as well, having that background within software development, having an understanding of knowing what they're doing and somewhat experiencing what they're experiencing now allows you to sort of confining them and vice versa and all that sort of stuff. So I think that's really great. And that's really important to see. It makes it very easy to respect them, right? Definitely. And you know, I can find a way to respect people in very different fields that I things that I've never done, right? I can respect a salesperson and, you know, I'm an introvert, socially awkward. I'm the worst salesperson you can possibly imagine. So I can appreciate that they can go into this crowd of people at a convention where I would just be, you know, hiding in the corner looking for the other guy with a pocket protector to talk about Star Wars and they're out <laughs> yeah. there finding connections yeah. and uh, I have to think about it right yeah. to remember that what they do is hard and even though it's very different than what I do to to remember to respect them but with the people in my discipline it's very easy to respect them because I know what they're doing and okay. I understand it and directly appreciate its value definitely and, and people could really tell if the boss respects them or not Definitely, 100%. So, no, awesome. Really do appreciate that. And that is a great little introduction to sort of how you work as a CTO and Invenium as well as a business. So, really great on that. So, moving on to sort of next topic, and this is more related to sort of the industry and sort of Invenium being sort of a fintech business. For yourself, and you've worked in sort of different industries within these sort of C-suite types of positions, mm -hmm. why do you think that a fintech space has become so prominent? Why is it such a sort of popular industry to be working in, especially within the technology space as well? Without trying to be too esoteric, it's a business that's pure information, right? Money itself is a concept. It's an agreement between people, right? There's no intrinsic value in a $20 bill. It's only that you and I have agreed to assign a value to it. And by the way, I think the statistics is that more than 90% of fiat currencies like dollars are dematerialized now. They're purely digital. They only exist inside computers, right? Yeah. And so it's a, a computer representation of an agreement, a social construction at just the very basic level of money itself. 
And then you talk about a corporation. Well, that's, you can't touch a corporation, right? It's a fictitious person is one way to describe a corporation. It's a, a filing with the secretary of state in the state where you incorporate. It's a social construction governed just by laws, by words on paper and things like that. There's no physical reality to it. And then shares of a corporation are imagined tiny slices of ownership of an imagined thing, which is a corporation that are denominated in an imagined thing, which is money, which are all held on the books. So financial services is entirely information, right? So information technology is right in the center of it, right? Definitely, yeah. You know, if you're making cars, you have to be able to melt metal and shape it and pull wire and stuff like that. And so there are different kinds of technology that manipulate those physical materials. But the manipulation of the essence of financial services is computers, it's information science. And I think that's why information technology applied to finance is so central and so important. Definitely. No, good, definitely. And you mentioned about currencies as well. And I mean, as we're moving into sort of a cryptocurrency sort of world, it's still currency, right? Uh, and it's still sort of, you can... There's an argument whether it's currency or whether it's a commodity. Well, exactly, right? yeah. But yeah, it's and something. We, yeah, and with that, I mean, do you think as that becomes more popular and more of the norm, because people are getting paid in sort of Ethereum, I've heard of, people are sort of getting their salaries with this. As we come into a world that's more focused on cryptocurrencies, do you think this is going to somewhat change the way that we look at fintech and financial businesses? Will it change it at all? The obvious answer is yes. Right. The question is really how profoundly. Yeah. Okay. And again, even fiat currencies, even government issued currencies are substantially dematerialized right now. Right. They exist on the books of computers, the stocks that you own in corporations. Nobody gets the stock certificate anymore. They're held in what they call street name by your brokerage firm in book entry at the Depository Trust Corporation. Right. So adding into that mix cryptocurrency or crypto assets, because, again, it's not clear whether they're a currency or a commodity. Right. Yeah. In, in many ways, they act a lot more like gold than like euros, in my opinion. Definitely, right. Yeah. But that's we're early. That's going to play out and we're going to see what's what there. Right. Yeah. It changes some things. There are a lot of people in DeFi, and, and I have some interest in what's happening in the DeFi world, who I think are naive if they think they're going to write some smart contracts and that's going to tear down Wall Street, right? Yeah. There's some value being created on Wall Street. Is there some rent being collected? In the bad sense, we'd call it a rentier, right? The collecting money for nothing just for position close to the king and yeah, there is some, but there's a lot of real value being created. And that value having been created, there are a lot of 40-story buildings in Manhattan full of lawyers <laughs> that are not going to allow that to just disappear without a fight. Yeah. And, you know, when I hear people say, well, but if it's, you know, running on a computer somewhere and it's completely disassociated from a corporation or from actual people, how could you do anything about it? It's like, you know. FBI agents with M4s and stun grenades can figure out a way. <laughs> yeah. So I think what Invenium is doing, which is very appealing to me and interesting to me as a guy who's worked in financial services for decades, is we're trying to write and play inside the lines. We're trying to bring all of the advantages of these new technologies 
And they do bring some very significant advantages and possibilities into the market. But, you know, we recently had a company-wide offsite and a third of the program was lawyers, ex-SEC guys, compliance lawyers from big famous law firms, because we think that being in compliance and being on the right side of the law will be a competitive advantage to us. You know, if you can figure out how to do something wonderful and think you're going to take down Goldman Sachs, or if you can figure out how to do something really wonderful and think that you're going to get Goldman Sachs to pay you a lot of money, I like that second bet much better. Yeah, definitely. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think the crypto stuff is interesting. I think that the distributed public ledger, the concept of trustworthy, public, immutable, irrefutable records of things happening are more interesting to me than the coins that are floating around. Definitely. There's layers to it. And obviously, when yeah. you look a bit more deeper into it, it's exciting stuff. I mean, we're very much moving into the future now, which is for some scary, for some exciting. Obviously, there's two yeah. different sides of the side you can be sitting. But yeah, no, really exciting stuff. And great to hear your sort of input on that side. So looking at the sort of technology that you're currently sort of utilizing within Invenium, as we progress in the future of technology, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's new versions of stuff coming out, new solutions, new products, et cetera, et cetera. Are there any sort of products or solutions that you're utilizing now? Or is there any that you look at now that's sort of up and coming and sort of that you think maybe we want to move in that sort of direction within the sort of IT space of Invenium? Our stack right now is a little boring. I mean, it's JavaScript under React in the front end and JavaScript Node.js in the back end. We run all on Amazon Web Services. It's a microservices architecture using Amazon's SQS packages to create an enterprise service bus and a publish subscribe paradigm for communication among those microservices. It's Postgres running as a managed service by Amazon. I think we'll be adding some Mongo in to handle some less structured information. We do work with eight different blockchains right now. And so that's somewhat novel and demands you know, some developers who know their way around Solidity or some other kind of edge case programming languages, especially for the smart contract oriented blockchains. There's a little different paradigm of how to think about building applications. They're isolated. They, they live within a virtual machine on the nodes of the blockchains and only through constructing sort of awkwardly these things called oracles can they communicate with the rest of the world. And their underlying database, if you will, is the blockchain, which is a worm database, an old term, a write once, read many database. So you have to be very thoughtful about certain things. For example, whatever you put into the payload of a message that you're writing to the blockchain is visible to the whole world. So you have to think very much about security and privacy. And you say, well, Rick, you can encrypt it. Well, yes, I can. But one essential thing about encryption is I have to be prepared for an encryption method to be defeated or to lose control of the credentials for encryption and to have key management. And well, guess what? If it's written on the blockchain and I lose control of the password, doesn't matter. I can't change it. I can't re-encrypt it with a new password. Yeah. It's there. And so if that becomes disclosed, that information is disclosed forever and I can't do anything about it. Uh, Right. 
I, so the key management, all the things that we've done around encryption, you have to change your way of thinking about all that kind of stuff. And, and it just and so, on that, in your, sorry to interrupt, but in the financial industry as well, I mean, massive, 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 that encryption is so important, that stuff gets out then, I mean. That's right. And identity is very important in financial services. And identity is not baked into most of the blockchains right now. So we're, we're seeing a new one called Accumulate that's coming that has put identity and identity management at its core. And I think that's very interesting. But there are laws, know your customer laws, anti-money laundering laws. There are laws that require a corporation to know who the beneficial owners of the corporation are so they can send tax documents out and notifications, things like that. And all of that doesn't work when it's just a string of characters that is your wallet address yeah. that you can't associate with an actual being. And so that kind of breaks a lot of heads when thinking about doing serious financial services stuff within the law on these blockchains, because I have to know if it's Bitcoin, then, you know, 53 transferring some to 47, that works fine. But if it's partial ownership of a limited partnership, which is a security controlled by the Securities Exchange Commission and their laws, random unknown people can't own it and transfer it, right? There yeah. are very specific laws that require us to know and to prove that you're not on blacklists for money laundering or terrorism. And in many cases, for many types of investments, to prove that you're a qualified institutional buyer or at least a qualified investor, right? So that you meet certain thresholds to invest in private or alternative investments. And all of that is being figured out right now. And so it's an exciting time to participate in that because there are a lot of open questions and a lot of people coming up with different ways to address them. And there'll be winners and losers, but I find it invigorating to be in a landscape that's not completely settled. Definitely. Um, and it's so important these days to be innovative within these sort of products and everything like that. Like you say, with the security stuff related to the blockchain, I mean, the fact that within the industry you're working in and that's not a thing already, you sort of scratch your head and you think, why is that not a thing already? And there's going to be someone out there that is a bit of a whiz when it comes to all this blockchain and think, if they mm -hmm. ain't going to do it, I'll do it myself. And then look, who knows yeah. what can come off it. Obviously, you said that's interesting to you. You're probably not the only person saying that. That's why it's so important to sort of put your head together, sort of get something out there and make something of it really good stuff and you was going to mention something else that sort of cut you off there i don't remember if you did okay uh, no, no okay no, you've been letting no me talk a lot uh, yeah. so thank you very much you're very interesting to listen to rick uh, you, you've got me almost hypnotized sitting here listening to, to all your stories so yeah no really interesting really good so far another question so you mentioned at the beginning of this call that you're looking to get to around about 100 engineers within your team mm -hmm. by the end of the mm -hmm. year what is the most important thing about scaling a business to get into those numbers to sort of building up a, a team that is one that you can trust, that delivers, but also is fun to work with, creates a great environment. There's obviously loads of key aspects, but what is important to you and what does it take to really scale a business? Well, you have to be able to afford to do it. <laughs> I think having a, a PMO, a project management office of people who are very solid and work extremely well together to coordinate everything that's going on is absolutely vital. I think having a good architecture team, a good security team, a good DevOps team, those are sort of givens, but you can't cheat them. And then we've come up with a structure that's working well for us with our development methodology. And that's, we organize into teams of 10. 
and that will be a business analyst, a project manager, a QA person embedded in the team, a tech lead, and then six developers, typically split between front end and back end, and typically split between senior and junior. And these 10-person teams I found are manageable. They're still big enough to undertake significant pieces of work, but they're small enough to keep track of what they're doing. And so as I scale, I have five such teams now. So that's 50 of my 65. And the other 15 are, as I said, like in QA or DevOps or the project management office or architecture. And I'm going to add more of those teams, right? All structured just like that. And having the good development lifecycle, having the good PMO, and having that structure to build the, the sort of atomic team of 10 is pretty broadly scalable. Yeah, right? definitely. And when you when you do build these teams and sort of you mentioned like teams of 10, in terms of more of an environment, in terms of more of how they work together, in terms of sort of people that you look to hire, what do you think is really important mm-hmm. for someone who works as a developer? What sort of tendencies when you are interviewing someone, what, what are you looking for? Not just obviously related to the skill set, but more about sort of how they come across. What is important to you in that? Some cultural fit matters. It doesn't take too many toxic assholes to ruin the morale I don't know what the language, you might have to bleep me or something, but um, to ruin the morale and make a hundred people hate coming to work, yeah. right? And and it's a lesson that's very hard learned by me because I'm very attracted to very smart and very capable people and willing myself to overlook a lot of sort of obnoxious behavior. Yeah if it's coupled with lots of competence. And a number of times in my career, organizations have taught me that that's a terrible idea. Yeah. Right? Where I got, you know, a great VP of development or VP of infrastructure or someone working for me who I just loved because they were so good at their job. They were so competent. They were so smart. And you know, they've just made people hate them. Yeah. And you have to fire them. No matter how competent they are, those toxic people will destroy an organization, destroy its productivity, destroy its morale, no matter how clever they are, no matter how hard it is to find their particular skills, you just have to fire them and do your best not to hire them. But I'm deeply skeptical about all of the hiring practices. I I read a lot of neuroscience stuff. And there's a book, Thinking Fast and Slow, by a guy named Kahneman, who's a Nobel Prize winner for psychology. He also wrote, uh, I just finished another book of his about errors in decision making. I'm trying to remember what the name of it was. It doesn't matter. But this guy, Daniel Kahneman, has written an awful lot about cognitive biases, limitations, variability within the same person making the same decisions, enormous variability between different people making the same decisions. He's worked with large data sets looking at, for example, judges making decisions about who to grant bail to or who not to grant bail to or who to allow out on parole and who not to. And Noise was the name of the other book, sorry, the the one I just finished. And he just finds that these decisions are just not consistent or right at all that in many cases very simple algorithms outperform really smart experts in their field of making decisions and 
in some cases with horrible effects. Like it turns out if you're going to be sentenced by a judge, make sure you're not sentenced right before lunch. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because you get a harsher sentence. Right. Yeah. Make sure you're not sentenced the Monday after the local sports team lost. Wow. Okay. Right? And yeah. I mean, and he uses big data, like lots and lots of examples to prove that this stuff is statistically significant and really bad. Anyhow. So all of the tools used, they examined very closely how law firms hire lawyers. Anyway, all of the tools, all of the interviewing techniques, all of the group decision-making around trying to hire people just seemed to be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there are a few organizations that are really very disciplined and they'll have five people interview someone and each of the five is going after a specific attribute, right? So one's going to talk about technical ability and one's going to talk about social ability and what, you know, they'll have something very specific to look for and they're not allowed to talk to one another because there are all kinds of biases about, you know, if the first person who speaks in the meeting speaks highly of the person, everybody else speaks highly of them. They separate these five things and then they sort of put them all together and you have to read all of them before you can have a conversation. And, and they're still terrible at predicting people's success. Yeah. You know, you find people that look like they should know what they're supposed to know. You can do some testing. You do the interviews because we don't have anything better. You enforce some discipline so that you don't allow really obnoxious biases to raise their heads, right? You know, a lot of middle-class white guys are going to hire a lot more middle-class white guys because yeah. they just connect to them because they're similar, right? And so sometimes you have to, to force some things to put some heuristics in place to find the diversity that you need. And it's over and over again proven that teams that are diverse in terms of gender, in terms of socioeconomic background, in terms of race, in terms of you know ethnicity, religion, sexual identity, et cetera, are much more resilient, right? Because all the INTJ middle-class white guys have the exact same strengths and the exact same blind spots. Yeah. And by getting that diversity, you build stronger teams, but it's hard to get people to hire into that most of the time, I, I try to assume the virtue in people, mostly not because I think they're bigoted or sexist or anything like that, but mostly just because, you know, it's sort of naturally easier to connect with someone who's kind of similar to you. Yeah, right. Definitely. Yeah. And so I could put these things in place and try to do the best job hiring, but you hire with a 90 day probationary period. And you know, when it gets to be day 88, you have a real strong conversation about, are they fitting in? Are they gelling? Are they doing good work? Are they causing trouble? Are you glad they're here or not? And get rid of the ones that are not. Yeah, definitely. And that process, I mean, you can say it yourself, it works. That's why probations are so good, especially when you work in the business, trying to formulate a team and build that sort of community. You need that second chance to sort of just to review that and say, look, it was what we're doing, the sort of right steps to where we want to be. And I love that you mentioned diversity as well. I mean, like I say, like it's such a big thing now, especially for businesses to be focusing on that gender, race, religion, etc. It's such a big thing. And also the psychology stuff as well. I mean, myself, I'm looking into psychology as well now because I feel like just generally in my sort of day to day speaking to people, having these conversations, it's mm -hmm. good to understand the sort of the tells. It really sort of helps you to get a 
bit more out of the conversation than you're already just hearing. So yeah, send me the links for those books after. I'll have a little look at that. I sure will. I will say Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, honestly, it was life-changing. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. I mean, yeah. it, it really fundamentally changed the way I see the way people think and organizations think and make decisions. It's a terrifically important book. It's hard reading. You've really excited me for that one. I'm going to look go straight on Amazon after this and have a look at that. Yeah, you have, have to. to. I, what I did with it is my fiance lives 40 minutes from me. And so I put it on book on, you know, audiobook, right on okay. Audible. And I would drive and listen to parts. And I think of myself as a fairly clever guy. But I can't tell you how often I would just hit the little button to back up 30 seconds a few yeah. times because I'd hear something. It would just set the fireworks off. <laughs> and I'd find that I'd thought about applications or examples of that thing that I heard for three minutes and missed everything else that he yeah. said. <laughs> and so I had to rewind those three minutes to get them yeah. back. And then the exact same thing would happen again over and over. But it was an ecstatic process as well as being, you know, a slog. So it's a it's a great one definitely look into that you really excited me for that one so i uh, really do appreciate that cool okay well look this is to sort of round this podcast off and this was just sort of really giving insight to our listeners similar positions to yourself rich we can put this in two parts in this question so before you moved into these sort of c-suite sort of positions what do you wish you knew before you moved into these sort of roles so there are a couple of state changes in one's career right so when you're an individual contributor then you want to be expert in what you do, right? Get really good at it. Be the subject matter expert. Be the one people come and ask questions of. You know, make sure you're doing your job and then try to do a little bit more, right? And so if you're doing your job and maybe finding a little bit more, you could cherry pick what the little bit more is, you know, and you become a person who's an influencer, an expert that people come to, you're going to get promoted, right? Yeah. And now you're going to manage individual contributors, okay? And then it's the, one of the first places where you have to learn how to let them be smart, right? So don't be the smartest one making every decision. Find ways to manage, but to allow them to fully use their talents and intelligence, right? Yep. Then you get promoted again, and now you have to manage managers, right? Yeah. And it's really different, right? Because now you're not tracking to see if the tasks are done. Now you're tracking to see if they're managing to see that all their tasks are done. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's different. And you're getting to people who are more senior, more confident, more opinionated, more ambitious. And it's a very fulfilling because you've got leverage now, right? But a different job. And then you get promoted to a job with a C in the front of it. Yeah. And now you're managing vice presidents, right? You're managing executives. And boy, is that a big change, right? Yeah. Because these are organizationally adept, socially adept, politically adept, smart people with their own power base and their own relationships around the organization, right? And you better forget about telling anybody what to do anymore, okay. right? When you're the individual contributor, you decide what to do and you do it to a certain extent, right? And then you're yeah. the boss and you're telling them you work on this and you work on this and they'll do it that way. 
And then with the managers, you got to give them a little bit more room, but you're still setting policy and standards and they kind of have to, you get to executives, they don't have to do what you say. You know, maybe formally they do, but they've worked there longer and they're buddies with the CEO or it's a different thing. So it's really moving away from management to leadership at that point. And it's not just words. It's how do you now create a community of these people to share ideas, to collaborate, to work together appropriately and to come up with a vision and to pursue it in alignment. Right. right? Okay. Yeah. The other big one is at that point in time, maybe at the bump up to, you know, VP of engineering or VP of infrastructure, maybe there, but especially once you get that CIO job or CTO job, it's no longer a matter. Do your job and cherry pick some extra things to do. It's now your job to make sure that all the cherries are picked, if you know what yeah. I mean. So you can't try to leave the stinky jobs for someone else. You got to make sure they're done too. And so instead of just being able to like really do your job and a little bit more as a way to move forward, now it's your job to make sure all the jobs are done. And that's a big change. And so switching to managing executives is a big change. Switching from doing your job well to making sure all the work that has to be done is done and prioritized appropriately is a big change, right? And then participating as an executive, you know, on the executive management team of the company, right? Where now you're sitting down with those salespeople who are different species, right? These sales guys, you know, they know all about all the sports teams and who's great and who won and who's this and who's that. I don't know any of that shit, right? I'm geek boy. I know all about Star Wars, right? They play golf. I don't play golf. They belong to the country club. They're very different. Yeah. And yet you have to find a way to connect to them. You have to find a way to respect them because they can tell if you're faking it. You have to find a way to make them confident that you're going to do the things that need to be done to make promises and keep promises over and over again. Right. You know, there's some techniques you have to, if you want to be influential, paradoxically, the way to become influential in an organization is to show respect to those who are influencers. So if you're at a level organizationally, where you can get the heads of departments to take your call or to have coffee with you. You just got to do it all the time. Right. And if you're like me and you're not naturally a social being, you know, I had a coach who said, say, how's business. Right. So I don't even know what to say to this guy. Who's the one who was mean to me in high school and knows, (laughs) you know, it's culturally so different than me. I could say, how's business. And everybody likes to answer the question. How's business. Right. And what happens is if you are, and I, you know, again, this isn't second nature to me. I'm not the extrovert, but I force myself. And if you're a person who's seen to regularly talk to all the decision makers and the influencers in the company, all of a sudden you're an influencer and a decision maker in the company, right? And if you talk to them and you're not a fool and you do a decent job at executing your job, they're going to start asking you for advice about stuff, right? And so by showing that respect to their influence and their position and engaging with them and finding a way to engage and yes, being competent so you can be trusted, all of a sudden now you're an influencer and you're on the inside of that and you can succeed as an executive. And boy, is that different than what it was like when you just got to write great code. Yeah. And you have to decide if you want it because there are, really talented people in any of the professions, right? Lawyers, engineers, programmers, doctors, 
you know, any of the real specialization kind of jobs who just don't want anything to do with managing people who think having to fire someone would, you know, break their heart. And I'm not saying it's easier to be done lightly or anything like that, but, but I can do it without it, you know, eating my soul up and yeah. some people can't. Right. And by the way, if you're running an organization, you need to find a career path for them, right. To let them be a superstar subject matter expert, you know, whether it's a distinguished engineer or an architect or something. And we're going to hear my dogs howling along with the fire. <laughs> no worries. This is the work from home world. Yeah. <laughs> um, when the fire engines drive by, they go and there's no stopping really? them. I apologize. <laughs> no, that's a problem. No worries. Um, I've got two myself. I know all yeah. about it. So you got to find a path for them if you want to yeah. keep them and keep them engaged and find interesting work for them to do. Right. And for those who want to manage, they have to succeed making these big state changes from individual contributor to line manager to director, to executive, to senior executive, because the job changes dramatically at each one of those stages. And absolutely contrary to what the individual contributor thinks, the people at the top are not omnipotent. They can't just say something and then it's so, they have to lead, they have to build consensus, they have to get support from their own people, but also from adjacent departments who are all influencers on how this stuff works. And you become in many ways, a servant of everybody and a leader and without too much arbitrary authority at all. Yeah, no, definitely. And like we said earlier, in terms of sort of this relationship that you create with the ICs, individual contributors, mm -hmm. the whole sort of that communication, that sort of leadership just come from how you formulate that relationship and i think that's obviously what is so important and that sort of takes me on to sort of the next part so say if you were sitting there with yourself 20 years ago what advice what best advice would you give yourself in terms of sort of to get to that point what to expect obviously sort of going over a bit of sort of what you wish you knew before but mm -hmm. what you could tell them and uh, tell yourself and say look this is what you can expect this is what you need to do just a whole spill on that I think coaches and mentors are really important. So you have to find them somehow. And there are, you know, different ways to find them. And I think that asking someone who's expert and more experienced than you for advice and then not taking it is colossally stupid. <laughs> so don't just find those coaches and mentors, but listen to them and internalize it. And don't be so arrogant that you're going to change the way everything works. I mean, I was really lucky in my first CIO job, which was about 20 years ago, that I was able to establish this relationship with a guy who'd been the CIO and CFO of Sun Oil, so a oh, great wow. big corporation. Yeah. And uh, Dudley was his name, and he was very generous to me with his time and advice, and he died a few years ago. I miss him very much, but it was a terrific boon to me in my life and in my career to find that mentor. And so look for a mentor. Find someone whom you admire. You'd be shocked at how easy it is. You could reach out to people and they'll respond. You know, there's a, a guy named Jeffrey Moore who wrote a number of very famous books about introducing disruptive technology. Crossing the Chasm was maybe his big claim to fame, a very good management book. You know, I sent him an email and he responded and we had a dialogue. Vince Cerf, right? You know, one of the founders of the internet, if you will, right? 
I found out where he worked and poked around and got a hold of an email and sent an email to Vince Cerf and he responded. And so reach out to people. You can yeah. connect to them. They'll respond. You know, if there's an author of a book, you read a book and you really like it, you know, don't think that they're all rich and famous and unassailable and untouchable. Most, even authors of very successful books, especially in management and technical fields, are not multimillionaires with five levels of people keeping the public away from them. You can connect to them. And if you have an interesting question to ask, they'll engage. Go out and find people to guide you. That's the most important advice. Really important. And I feel like I've utilized that in my career as well. Like you said, look, it's always good to ask questions if you're ever stuck. And this is something that is quite relevant from for probably a lot of developers, engineers, even what they're doing now in terms of you're going to get stuck. And it's not a bad thing to ask questions, to ask for help, because that's the only way to avoid it in the future. Really. You have to. Yeah. None of us knows everything. Exactly. Not one of us. The willingness and openness to reach out and find the answer and then take the advice and the wisdom once you find it. That's the difference between success and failure. Definitely. Definitely. Awesome. Well, look, Rick, I mean, absolute pleasure. Really do thank you for having on. I mean, is there anything you want to tell our listeners? Anything sort of what's going on with yourself, what to expect from you and Invenium and over the next couple of months moving in 2022? Oh, I'm not the pitch man. I'm the engineer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think Invenium is doing really exciting things. Yeah. If you're a big commercial real estate investor and you want to figure out how to take sort of sleepy assets that show up as nothing on your balance sheet and activate them and put them on your balance sheet so you can leverage them, we've got something great for you. And if you're everybody else in the universe, what we're doing is too boring to even talk about. <laughs> um, Good stuff. So Awesome. Awesome. Well, look, Rick, like I say again, really do appreciate you coming on today. People can find you on LinkedIn. Once to come out to ask for advice for yourself, I'm sure you'll be more than happy for them to reach out with an email. Whatever. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. On LinkedIn, if you just click the button to ask to make a connection, you're probably not going to get past filters. But if yeah. you take the time to write a sentence saying why, or you heard the podcast, or you've got a question about this or that, anything except being yet another consultancy who wants to sell me developers. Yeah. Not that I don't love that business, but I got my relationships in place and I'm not blowing them up. So I'm not looking for a fresh one. You know, I'm married. I don't need a girlfriend. Um, <laughs> but i'll respond yeah good stuff awesome well look thank you everyone for listening expect to see more of this in the next coming episodes yeah look any questions regarding sort of your next opportunity regarding anything about the podcast like i said rick you can obviously reach out to him please contact us all and look forward to seeing you in the next episode thank you have a good day thank you again